I want to say right up front that this passage is a passage that has a huge number of uh, conflicting interpretations. And some of the commentaries that I have looked at have almost despaired of coming to any conclusion on uh, some of the features of the passage. And so I, I want to say that I'm approaching this subject uh, humbly, recognizing that I may be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong, or I wouldn't be preaching on this. But even those who are most dogmatic on uh, the, uh, the fact that they think they know what this passage means uh, admit this is a very tough passage. Uh, E.J. Young, who is a, a brilliant, brilliant scholar, said, quote, this passage is one of the most difficult in all the Old Testament, and the interpretations which have been offered are almost legion, unquote. Now, if E.J. Young said that, I think you can sympathize with me for struggling over this passage. Uh, it's going to be uh, one of those that you have to put your thinking cap on as we follow along, but I think you're going to find it worthwhile because I really believe that the Lord has uh, opened up this passage to me and shown me an interpretation that really um, answers the objections that the various schools of thought have thrown at each other. And I believe that all of them have latched onto certain portions of the truth, but they felt the tension because um, it's not all meshed together. And so we're going to look at uh, uh, this week, what in the world is the 70 weeks all about? Uh, next week, we're going to be getting into the heart of the passage, especially verse 24 in our communion meditation. And um, I'm not following any homiletical procedure today. Uh, it's two points. Uh, first point is what does it mean? In the last two or three minutes, I'll be giving a few preliminary applications. Now, we can praise the Lord. The first word of our passage, 70, is at least one word in our passage that's not controversial. Everybody believes that there are 70-somethings that are going to be happening uh, in the future to Daniel, and that that 70 is thematically connected to the 70 years of exile that are mentioned in verse 2. Let's go ahead and read that. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And this is one of the reasons why, there's other reasons as well, but one of the reasons why uh, most commentaries, by far the vast majority of commentaries, see the 70 weeks of verse 24 as being 70 weeks of years. Now, for the English-speaking people, this might be a little bit confusing. 70 weeks of years, I mean, what does that mean? Because we only think of days as being numbered in terms of a seven-day sequence with six working days and a Sabbath, and then you start the sequence over again. But I want you to turn with me to Leviticus 25, and we're going to be seeing how the Scripture does use this, this concept of weeks in connection with uh, years being divided up into seven and uh, really, you need to read all of Leviticus 25 and 26 as background to Daniel 9. But I'm just going to uh, select a couple of verses here. Uh, let's take a look at chapter 25. And let's begin at verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. This was something peculiar to the land uh, when they were in it. But it says, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. 
But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. So there's that concept of years being divided up into weeks as well, where there's six days of labor, there's a Sabbath year, uh, six days, six years of labor, a Sabbath year, and then you start the cycle all over again and begin another week. Now take a look at the second, uh, the last sentence there in verse 4. And he begins to outline some of the things that uh, must happen on this Sabbath year. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own, according, uh, own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you and your servant, for your maidservant and your hired servant, for the stranger who sojourns with you, for your livestock and the animals that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Uh, and the rest of the chapter, he outlines some of the things that were to happen on that Sabbath year and uh, what would happen on uh, the Jubilee year. The Jubilee year was seven weeks in other words, 49 uh, years, there would be an extra year Sabbath tacked on, which was the Jubilee year. So anyway, on the Sabbath years, they were uh, not to uh, till the land. They were to allow the poor to come in and glean what naturally growed there. Uh, they were to uh, free uh, uh, people from debts. Uh, they were to uh, free slaves. Uh, slavery uh, that was indentured servitude for somebody, you know, who burned down somebody's house and couldn't pay it off. They had to work for seven years. They would all be fle freed during that uh, seventh year period. And all of those provisions, I believe, are critical to properly understanding and interpreting Daniel 9. Turn over to Leviticus 26. And uh, in, in this chapter, he provides for the blessings that would happen upon those who break the covenant, the curses that would happen, excuse me, vice versa, blessings that would happen to those who keep the covenant, curses on those who would break the covenant, and central to that covenant concept was weekly Sabbath-keeping and yearly Sabbath-keeping for the yearly weeks. Uh, let's just take a look at uh, a couple of what happens if they fail to keep those yearly Sabbaths and the exile that would result. Verse 31, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall, uh, shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. And notice especially verse 35. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. In other words, for every week that they uh, broke a Sabbath while they were in the land, there was going to be a corresponding week of, of um, exile that they would experience. And we're not going to read this right now, but it, in, um, we may come back to it. But if the kind of prayer that Daniel gives and the kind of repentance that Israel had did not transpire, Leviticus goes on to say, and earlier verses, it emphasizes that, that God would bring a sevenfold worse a desolation upon them, and if they still didn't repent, there would be another addition of a sevenfold uh, curse, and on and on. And I think that is key to understanding why Israel continues on in years of desolations, and we may touch on that a little bit later. Now, for a third passage as background, 
I want you to turn to 2 Chronicles 36. This is a very key passage which explicitly ties in the 70 years that Daniel talks about, that Jeremiah prophesied about, with this Sabbath concept that we just read. 2 Chronicles 36, beginning at verse 20. It says, And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now we're going to come back to that passage because I think it is a key commentary on the meaning of Daniel chapter 9. Uh, right now, I'm not going to deal with the next verses because it'll confuse you with too many thoughts. We're just dealing with what do the 70 weeks mean? And uh, in this passage, I hope you can see that if Israel was in exile for the exact number of years that she had broken Sabbaths, that means that there were 70 weeks that led up to the exile. You follow that? See, the seventh year... The Sabbath year was always the seventh year, and if there were 70 broken Sabbaths, that meant that there were 70 weeks of years, in other words, 490 years, that led up to the exile. Now, I'm going to give you a chart here, and I've given one in your, in your bulletins so that you can make some notes, and um, we'll try to... See, is that upside down? That's right side up. We're just going to try to uh, outline for you here some of the, the things that were going on. Now, this first line up here from 1377 to 607 represents exactly 110. And again, these dates uh, in secular books, you can be plus or minus uh, one or two years, both of these. Some, some people put this at 1375 and this at 605. But in any case, there's 110 weeks or 770 years that transpire in there. Then there is a 70-year period. Let me get this other uh, outline for you where you can see the breakdown a little bit more easily. There's 70 years of exile right here. Then there's another 70 weeks over here. Okay? I want you to see that there is uh, 70 weeks on each side of the 70 years of exile. That's going to be very, uh, very important. I believe that the Sabbath structure is absolutely critical to properly interpreting uh, Daniel 9. He doesn't just say 77s. It was precisely because Israel had violated the, the, the structure of God's time, the Sabbath years, that they were cast into exile for that period of time. And so there are two points that we've established. The first point is that the word weeks is not just used of a daily sequence of seven days, it's also used of a sequence of seven years. Leviticus 25 defines it that way, and actually the word weeks is used in the Mishnah, in the Talmud by the Jews to speak of, of weeks of years. Uh, some old Jewish commentaries uh, use the word weeks to describe uh, periods of seven uh, in, in years, and so it's a concept I think that should be uh, uh, fairly uh, straightforward. Uh, 490 years on each side equals 70 weeks. Now, the second point that we've established is that the 70 weeks of verse 24, that's these 70 weeks right over here, is parallel to the 70 weeks before the exile. Okay? And again, I think this is something that is very, very uh, significant because uh, many people 
see the second uh, period of 70 weeks as being a period of blessing where the, 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 the church is in covenant with God, they're, uh, they're, they're obeying the Lord, there's blessings of the Lord, but actually it is the very opposite. Just as these 70 weeks of apostasy led to an exile, led to desolations, these 70 weeks here of apostasy will lead to exile again and desolations in the land. Uh, there's another issue that we need to settle, and that is in what year did these 70 years end? And secondly, in what year did the 70 weeks over here begin? Now, there's a lot of controversy on that point. You can just put in there, I believe it's 537, 537, the first year of Darius, the first year of Cyrus. And uh, we're going to be uh, looking at that in a little bit more uh, detail. Let me point out where the controversy comes from. Take a look at Daniel 9, verse 25. It says there, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The key phrase is there, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Okay? Right here, there was a command, some decree that was given by a king to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And there's four different interpretations of what that decree is. Uh, there are people who believe it started with Cyrus, and yet they find that, um, uh, and, and that's my particular view, they find, well, the years get messed up if you start there. And many of them opt for a symbolical view of years. I believe it's literal years he's talking about. We'll get to that in a moment. There's others who uh, start it with the... Uh, the uh, uh, decree of Artaxerxes in his uh, fourth year, which would be in um, sometime. The, the date left my mind. But anyway, there's four uh, differing views on that. And if you just take a look at verse 23, I'm going to show you some of the basis for why I believe that it has to be uh, the same time that the 70 years ended is when the 70 weeks begins, and it's with the decree of Darius, the decree of Cyrus. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. Now, the word command there, exactly the same Hebrew word as the word for command that goes out in verse 25. So even in context, he gives a hint as to when this command goes forth, and when is it? Verse 1 tells us, in the first year of Darius. So it's 537, no controversy about when the first year of Darius is, uh, 537. And I want you to turn with me to Ezra, and this is a, a passage that will help to confirm this. Ezra chapter 1. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, maybe I should just stop there for a moment because uh, people many times get confused. They see Darius and Cyrus, they think it's totally different periods of time. Cyrus conquered Babylon, and in Cyrus's first year over his empire, he put Darius on the throne over Babylon. So Babylon's a subset of Persia, okay? So it's the same year, and there's no controversy on that. But anyway, in, in Ezra chapter 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, and he gives this decree for the people to come back into the land and to build uh, the temple. 
And so clearly he says that the 70 years ends with Cyrus's first year, 537, right there. What I'm wanting to say is that connected to that is the decree for the beginning of the 70 weeks. If you turn over one page to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, uh, you see uh, the same thing being uh, said there. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons. Notice that the 70 years doesn't extend beyond Cyrus, beyond uh, into Persian kingdom. It says, it became servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. I don't think you could get any clearer words. The 70 years are fulfilled in Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying... Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And he quotes a portion from Cyrus's decree. So I think it's very, very clear 70 years has to end there. Now, if you want some additional information, Zechariah 1, verse 14, speaks in the second year of Darius... That'd be 538, 538, 539 in that range. Uh, excuse me, vice versa, I'm going backwards. It would be 536 or 37 in that range. Uh, it speaks of the 70 years as having already been accomplished. Zechariah 7 verse 4 does exactly the same thing. Now, there are two main objections that people raise against this view. And the first objection, and this is repeated over and over again in the commentaries and in the books, and that is that Cyrus's decree is not a decree to build the temple. I mean, to build the city. It's only a decree to build the temple. And in the passages I read from Ezra 1 and 2 Chronicles 36, that's exactly right. It is only a decree to build the temple. Look at Daniel 9 again. Daniel 9 makes it very clear it has to be a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. And so they say it must be a different decree, even though it makes the most sense to make Cyrus, uh, just thematically and exegetically, it makes the most sense for Cyrus's decree. They say, because of the lack of a decree to build Jerusalem, it's got to be later. And I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 44, because I think it is crystal clear in the scripture that Cyrus did give a decree to build the city. Isaiah 44 and uh, verses 26 through 28. And this is speaking about Cyrus. It says, Who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, You shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. By the way, that was a reference to Cyrus, if you know history, how he diverted the Euphrates River and was able to march under the, under the city into Babylon and conquer it. And that was in the same year, by the way. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. 
Okay, it is crystal clear here. Cyrus did not just decree the building of the temple. He also decreed the building of the city. So there's no getting around this. Now, this puts me in trouble. Uh, over the past several weeks, I've been wondering, okay, it is crystal clear. It has to be Cyrus. The problem is the years don't add up. And so we'll get to that in a little bit. But I want one more verse, Isaiah 45, verse 1. This whole prophecy is about Cyrus. Thus says the Lord who was anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. So uh, speaking about Cyrus, take a look at verse 13 at one of the things that he speaks about him. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you will find commentaries all over the place denying that Cyrus had anything to do with the building up of Jerusalem. So I want you to have that in your margin of your Bibles, that uh, Daniel 9, verse 25, the decree to go and build Jerusalem is in 537. And secondly, have those cross-references in there, Isaiah 44, verses 26 through 28. And Isaiah 45, verse 13, because if you don't have that D marker, it's going to totally mess up your interpretation of the passage. Because there are different options you can go. That D marker limits where we can go. So it's very important you have that. Isaiah 44, 26 through 28, and Isaiah 45, verse 13. Now, the only other objection that's given, and this is a, a major objection, is that... Um, you know, 537 B.C. is a whole lot more years away from the Messiah than 490 years, okay? And that uh, is a, a major objection. Many people who have said it is clear exegetically it has to be Cyrus have said, well, it must be symbolical years then. I don't buy into that. I believe it is mandated that they be literal years, and I'm going to explain how that is. I believe that there are gaps in there that are implied right in the text of, of Daniel chapter 9. Now, most American evangelicals believe that there is a gap between the 69th week, way up here, and the 70th week. They have different reasons for uh, believing that, but they believe that exegetically there is justified gap there. I believe that uh, each one of the weeks has gaps between, uh, not each one of the weeks, each one of the, the three sections are divided up in sections because there are gaps that are there. And let me just have you take a look at the chart uh, for a moment, and we'll try to um, go through that and explain it. Okay, uh, we've already seen that there is a parallel between the 490 years before and the 490 years after. Now, here's one of the things. All... All of the commentaries I have looked at agree that the 490 years that led up to the exile cannot be sequential. It doesn't matter where in this period you look at it, how you slice it and dice it, there is no way that you can have a sequential. Uh, what you have is gaps. It's just all of those black marks add up to 490 years of apostasy. Because this whole period is 770 years, okay, that Israel was in the land. It's exactly 110 weeks uh, of years. And uh, one of the starting, startling things that I found when I began to do the arithmetic and I looked up uh, the seven times that the Scripture says that the land was given rest, where we know that there was Sabbath-keeping prior to that time, every single one of them was exactly 40 years. Uh, which is remarkable by itself. 
But when you begin to do the, the math and you take out those 40-year periods, it comes to exactly 490 years from the time that the, the various uh, uh, chronologies date the judges, the beginning of the judges, when the land was conquered, uh, to the time of the exile. And again, some date it 1375 to 605, but it, 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 uh, any way you slice it, it comes to 490 years. Now, here's how it, how it works out um, after the, the exile, when they get back into the land. I think just on the surface of it, if there are gaps over here, we should not object to there being gaps over here because they are parallel, 490-year periods. Now, in this first white spot that's on your sheets, after 537 B.C., there was a 40-year period in which people kept the covenant of God. The land did receive its Sabbaths. This was under the ministries of people like uh, Zechariah and Haggai under Zerubbabel and uh, Shishbazar. And uh, the covenant was enforced. In fact, uh, Zechariah uses language directly from Leviticus chapter 26, talking about the covenant blessings that would come upon the land. And remember how central the Sabbath keeping was to that covenant. Let me just give you one hint from Zechariah 1.11. We have walked to and fro throughout the whole land, and behold, all the land is resting quietly. And so the land had a 40-year period of rest, and that 40 years was excluded from the 70 weeks because the 70 weeks, remember, is weeks of apostasy, weeks in which the Sabbath is not being kept. Okay, so it's excluded from that because there was rest in the land. Now, from 490... Um, from 497 till the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, there was widespread apostasy. And by the time you get to Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, it was, the things were really horrible. And uh, what I want to do is outline for you uh, very briefly this 49-year period. Uh, Daniel 9.25 speaks of it as seven weeks. Okay, seven weeks is seven times seven. That's 49. Uh, summarize for you what happened there. These reformers... Uh, indicated when they came, the, the place was in, in, in a mess. The covenant was defiled. Uh, the, the, the whole sacrificial system was being abused. The, uh, the, the priests in the temple uh, were uh, so uh, out of tune with spiritual realities that they were getting drunk, even vomiting on the, on the tables and on the altar uh, there. Uh, he speaks of slavery of the poor, uh, failure to keep the seventh-year Sabbaths and all of the provisions in there. And so that first little black mark there is 49 years. Then after that comes a 40-year period in which these reformers, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, convinced the people to keep covenant with God. And the land was given its rest. Let me just give you one example again. Nehemiah 10, verse 31 says... And this was a part of the covenant that was publicly signed and sealed by the leaders of the people. It says that we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exaction of every debt. Okay, so there was a 40-year period in which there was, the land was receiving uh, its rest. Now, when does that period end? Uh, the only reference that we have in secular history is the Elephantine Papyrus, and uh, that indicates that in 407 uh, B.C., which is at uh, the end of that uh, white period there, in 407 there was another governor in the land. So at least by 407, Nehemiah had to have left the land, and most people uh, assume that it was about 408. 
Well, again, you have an exact 40-year uh, period of time uh, that is there. Then begins the long period of 62 weeks, which adds up to 434 years. And if you go from 408 to 26 AD, you have exactly 434 years. And um, I think there's a reason why Daniel divided things up into seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week because there was a gap between each of those. They had to be separated off. They were only counting those years that were of apostasy. And uh, there is a gap between the 62nd and the last week, or 69th and the last week, and Malachi prophesies at the beginning of that period of John the Baptist, "'Remember the law of Moses, my servant, "'which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, "'with the statutes and judgments. "'Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet "'before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord.'" That's a reference to God's judgment on Israel and Jerusalem in the first century. But what does Christ interpret that Elijah? He says, this is John the Baptist. He quotes this, and he says, this is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist's ministry is described, it says, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. So it says he will do that. John the Baptist would be successful in his reforms, and he would avert judgment. Now, how long was that judgment averted for? Christ tells us in Matthew 24, one generation, which in the Hebrew, again, uh, is 40 years. And that 40-year period then, actually I've not marked it on the charts, but the, the end of this black line would be 26 A.D. That's when John the Baptist and Christ was baptized uh, just a, a couple of months later. Uh, from 26 A.D. to 66 A.D. would be uh, that 40-year period. And I think it's very significant how the Scriptures are given uh, during these various periods of time. It says that during this period of time re represented by that bar, there would be no prophets. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Amos 8, verses 11 through 14 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Doesn't matter where they go in the world, east, west, north, south, from sea to sea, they will not be able to find any new revelation during that period of time from the Lord. Uh, Hosea prophesied uh, that they would be without king and without prophet for a long period of time. Doesn't specify how long. Hosea 3, verses 4 through 5. Uh, Ezekiel prophesied of that period, disaster will come upon disaster and rumor will be upon rumor. Then they will seek for a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel uh, from the elders. And so from the time that the last prophet, the last person who brought any scriptures, which was Nehemiah 408 until the coming of John the Baptist and Christ was that 62-week period in which there was no revelation that was brought. Now let's see how the final week or period of sevens fits in. If you look at Daniel 9, verse 26, we'll uh, work our way through the passage real quickly. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. I want you to notice he does not say during the 70th week. Now that's a possibility 
But he doesn't say that. He says after the 62 weeks, and I think he says it because there was a gap that was intended there. Now, what happens after the Messiah is cut off? Not for himself, but for our sins. Uh, it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Now, there's no controversy on that part of the verse. Uh, almost all commentators agree. That's describing, after the crucifixion of Christ, that's describing the destruction that came upon the land of Israel and that came upon uh, Jerusalem. And um, uh, I want you to notice that it's not just till Jerusalem is destroyed, it's till the end of the war. Now, if he had said till Jerusalem is destroyed, it would end in 70 AD. You can look up in any secular or religious encyclopedia, dictionary, uh, and you, uh, on the Jewish war, even the Anchor Bible, you know, which is a pretty liberal uh, uh, dictionary, you'll find that the Jewish war went from 66 AD to 73 AD when Masada and some of the other strongholds uh, were mopped up. Now, smack dab in the middle of that seventh week, offering and sacrifice are cut off when the temple is destroyed. Uh, take a look there in verse 27. He says it's during that war that the 70th week comes about. Okay, verse 26 is just finished. Everybody agrees. It's talking about the war against Jerusalem in the first century. When does this week come? It says, then. Not before, not after, but then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. No more sacrifices. Israel, because they've not had a temple since, and have never been able to have sacrifices. And actually, it happened about two weeks uh, just a few days before Titus came in, which is what the next phrase talks about. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That's Titus. He brought in his, uh, his eagles. He made sacrifices to his gods, desecrated the temple. And subsequent to that, against his orders, actually, the temple was destroyed. How long uh, does Israel go in a period of uh, uh, desolation? It really doesn't say, but it says the times are determined by God even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And so we have a sequence of events uh, in this passage that uh, without any exegetical gymnastics, it goes through the passage, it just naturally flows through. And I believe that this is the, the, the correct interpretation uh, of the 70 weeks. Just as there were uh, a very uh, naturally, there were gaps in the 490-year period over here, there were gaps over here. There was a 40-year gap uh, prior uh, to that. And just as this 490-year period led to exile, this 490-year period uh, led to exile and uh, desolations. Um, now, here's one question that, uh, that might be asked. After this 490-year period, which was 70 weeks, there was 70 years of desolation. Why doesn't God do that over here? I mean, there was just, there was 490 years, and uh, shouldn't there just be 70 years of desolation and bring Israel back into the land again? Now, there's two answers that could be given. The first answer is that Leviticus 26 makes it very clear that if Israel, even at the time of Daniel, if Israel had not repented, they would not have been able to come into the land. Uh, Leviticus 26 indicates that uh, in, in terms of this 70 years, uh, if they don't repent at the end of 70 years, then he will bring seven times worse, which would be 490 years. If they still don't repent, 
that same sevenfold would be added, another 490 years. Now, this is not a part of the exegesis of Daniel 9, but I'll just throw it in for good measure. If you start counting up 70 years from the beginning of the 70th week, uh, you come up to the war, uh, the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 135 AD, and that may or may not be significant. Israel definitely did not learn uh, because they were judged even more severely. One old um, uh, historian said, from that time on, the entire race has been forbidden to set foot anywhere in the neighborhood of Jerusalem. So God multiplied, because there was no repentance, God multiplied sevenfold. You keep adding 490 years to the original 70, and uh, we may or may not be in very significant times with regard uh, to Israel. But the first reason is that the kind of repentance and prayer that Leviticus 26 calls for, that Daniel provided, has never been forthcoming in Israel. They have not repented. The second reason is related, and that is that God made his covenant with the remnant of Israel, with the new Israel. And the only way that physical Israel is going to avoid its desolations is by becoming Christians, by entering into the church. Hebrews was written just prior to the Jewish war, according to all of the commentators I have. And in Hebrews 8.13, the writer says this, In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He's talking about the taking away of all of those old things in that, uh, that war against Jerusalem. In other words, the new covenant would be vindicated and it would be enforced by the doing away of the old covenant. Now in support of that language, is the way, verse 27 in the Hebrew words, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. E.J. Young uh, says that, uh, that nowhere in any literature, sacred or secular, is that language used for the making of a covenant. Never, ever is it used of that. Um, he says there is no covenant being made there. If you want to say it's confirmed, that, that, that's fine. But here's how he translates it. He says, somewhere on here, he shall cause a covenant to prevail with many for one week. Uh, the word for, um, for confirm there is actually gibor. It's uh, the word for mighty warrior, a mighty uh, warrior that is there. Uh, the covenant that was made to prevail, or if you want to translate it, confirm either way, was already in existence. It was made by Christ 40 years before with very similar language. Christ said in Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many, not for all, but for many, which is the language used here for the remission of sins. Uh, not made a, it's not a covenant made with unbelieving Jews. This is a covenant made with the believing uh, 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 elect. Now, two chapters earlier in chapter 24, Christ had said that the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel within that generation will be the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven, the sign of his supremacy. And I think even just the literal Hebrew of Daniel 9 uh, indicates that Christ as a mighty warrior would cause his covenant to prevail with many elect against the apostate Jews that were in Jerusalem. Now, I know this has been an extremely heavy-duty sermon. You know when I've got one of these and I've got overheads that uh, you're in trouble already. Um, but I just want to end uh, quickly with some uh, uh, quick applications that we can take home with us, and then next week we will 
um, uh, get, get a lot more applications. First application of the meaning of the 70 weeks is that God is in total control of history. And I think that's a beautiful thought that we can take with us. Those 70 weeks are said in verse 24 to be determined by God. And in verse 27, the last part of verse 27, it says the desolations of Israel are determined by God. Okay, it's in God's hands as to how long all of those things will work out. Now, we could speculate, as I almost did with Leviticus 26, as to how long the desolations of Israel would, uh, would happen. I'm going to resist that. I don't think it's appropriate. Uh, in Acts 1, the disciples asked Christ, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Or something along those lines. Uh, and, and his response was not to deny that there was a future for Israel. His response was very interesting. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the season which the Father has put in his own authority. But you, here's what you need to worry about, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, it's not up to us to know what the results are going to be. What's up to us is to be faithful with the Great Commission. And you know, knowing that God has determined the times and the seasons, that He can never fail, gives us a sense of stability that enables us to take the Great Commission and to not grow discouraged, that enables us to say, there will be results in God's good time. All I have to do is, by the power of God's Spirit, I need to take dominion. Second application. The 40-year period... 40 years, periods, both before and after the exile, I think are wonderful testimonies to the incredible generosity, the incredible mercy of God. It's just amazing. In fact, when you look on that chart and you see the black represents the, uh, the, the evil in Israel, there's a whole lot more black than there is white spaces, isn't there? The incredible mercy of the Lord. He didn't need to give them those 40-year periods of mercy. And, you know, I think it can give us faith to cry out to the Lord for mercy on America. He is a merciful God. And when the church cries out for mercy, the Lord uh, may stay his hand as well. A third application is that judgment cannot be postponed forever. I think sometimes uh, Christians become very uh, lackadaisical, uh, really don't take the concept of judgment seriously. But God says there's coming a D-Day. And uh, we need to uh, mind that. The fourth application is that no sin is overlooked. Even during the times of prosperity of Israel, God was counting up the sins. He was counting up those broken Sabbaths. And, uh, and uh, even though the people thought everything was going well, God's, God was saying, no, there are all of these things that are going to be held against you. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ that can wipe that out. And we need to be pleading the blood of Jesus Christ uh, for our nation. And so this chapter gives us hope. It leaves the door open for a possible future for Israel in, in verse 27. But it's also a sobering passage because it lets us know God judges nations. And uh, we should not either be fatalistic, nor should we be, uh, on the other hand, um, uh, lackadaisical uh, about the future. Even a pagan nation like Nineveh received a 40-year reprieve by the Lord, even though they deserve, they stank the high heaven and they deserve judgment. And so I think these applications can give us encouragement in our prayers. They can give us encouragement as we go out into our society and faith to expect mercy from the Lord as we plead that mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.